Last week we began to focus on prayer, and we talked specifically about the heart behind the prayer. If you'll remember, if you weren't here, we used a story that Jesus told about two men, a Pharisee and the tax collector, who went into the temple in order to pray. Their prayers are very different, and the reason their prayers were different is because their hearts were different. They were, well, the Pharisee went in and he was full of himself. The tax collector went in and he emptied himself. The Pharisee went in and he was trying to impress God with all the things he'd done and how good he'd been. The tax collector went in and understood that his life was a mess. That he had lived in such a way that would have broken God's laws, but probably more importantly would have broken God's heart. And he went in with remorse over that. The Pharisee went in thinking he had no needs. The tax collector went in and he expressed his need. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Two different prayers from two different hearts. And I guess if there was any one little nut, one little kernel that we could carry out of that is that the the humble heart expresses true dependence on God. The Pharisee knew nothing of dependence on God. He was depending on himself. The tax collector had no one to depend on but God because he knew that in himself he was lost. Today we want to continue to look at prayer. Now many of you prayed for a long time. I can remember prayers that I was taught as a child, those rote repetitive type prayers that we would offer, uh, for instance, at mealtime. Uh, God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. By his hands we are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. It was in a poem, and it was said in such a way that we could remember it, and we prayed it. And, and I'll remember, <laughs> I remember that prayer was prayed, I mean, probably into my teenage years. And then things began to change. Now, we, when we were trying to teach our children to pray, we said, well, we don't want them to have you know, those things are good, and I think they learn like song prayers and things like that. But around our house, we were in a hurry, and so our prayer became, thank you, Jesus, for this food. Amen. We were done. And so Jackie even shortened it as she was a child, and she was learning it. She would just say, for the food, amen. Okay, but, you know, God understood, and that's okay. There are those kinds of prayers that we pray. We learn those as a child. They're in some kind of rhyme, some kind of song. We remember them. And sometimes we do them as prayers, and sometimes we do them just as something we do before we eat or before we go to bed or whatever, whatever it is. There are other prayers that you might find printed in your devotional literature. I don't know what you use, open windows or uh, daily bread or, or whatever it might be. But as you look through those, a lot of times they'll have the scripture and they'll have a little devotional thought. And then they'll have a little prayer that you can pray. And, and it's okay, but it's intended as a prayer and not just as something to, to read and, and, and to meditate on. I guess when it comes to praying, a lot of times our prayers are, are more hit and miss here and there. SOS kind of prayers, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. But what I'd like us to consider this morning is the yearning behind our prayers. Do I yearn 
long for the presence of God? Do I, do I look forward to time spent with Him, or is it more of a nuisance, something I've got to check off my list, something I've got to do today as a matter of my religious duty, rather than I can't live without this. This is key to my life. This is essential to my life. I yearn for this. And I couldn't think of a better place for us to look at that than in the 63rd Psalm. So if you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open up to Psalm 63. Now, I'll give you a moment to find that, Psalm 63, and I'm going to ask you if you'll keep your Bibles open. Now, if you've got your notes, you didn't bring your Bibles, the Scripture's actually printed in there. It's broken up into the segments that we're going to look at it. But you may want to have it right there in your Bible so that you can say, yep, there it is. I can mark that page. I can go back to it and see what God has to say to my life. Now, excuse me, as you're turning, you'll find that the header above Psalm 63 says something like a a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This was not just some little camping outing that he was on. You know, he went out with the Boy Scouts out in the wilderness somewhere. He was actually out in a desert area, a very dry, barren area, and probably for one of two reasons. This psalm was either during the time that he was running from King Saul or during the time that he was running from his own son, Absalom. Now, you can go back and read First and Second Samuel for yourself, and I'd encourage you. It's perfectly good for your own edification. It gives you all the background behind this. But basically, if I can, if I can kind of condense this down very, very quickly, the reason he was running from King Saul is that King Saul basically went nuts. Saul became, the, he was the first king of Israel, and he looked like a king. He was tall, he was very impressive, he was a very big strapping guy, he was handsome, he was intelligent, he had every attribute you'd want in a king. And the people said, we want a king, and God said, really you don't, I'm your king. And they said, no, we want to be just like everybody else, so would you give us a king? And God said, I'm going to do it, but let me tell you, up front, I'm going to give you this king, but it comes at a price. He's going to tax you. If he finds your daughter and he likes how your daughter looks, you, he, he might just take her for his own. You, don't have, you can't do anything about it. He's a king. And if he comes and he says, I want your sons to go in the army, you can't do anything about it because he's a king. But you're asking for a king. Are you sure you want a king? Yes, we want a king. And so they gave him Saul. And Saul went along pretty well as king for a while, and then he decided to take matters into his own hands to disregard what God had said. And God said, you know what? Your days are numbered. If you're not going to listen to me, then, then, then you've you got to go. And so he, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David as the next king. Now, David was nowhere near as impressive as Saul, but God was impressed because of his heart. And so God selected him, but the problem was Saul was still the king. And so David waited his time out. As a matter of fact, David got the opportunity to go and to to join the army. If you go kill a nine-foot giant with a slingshot, you're going to get some attention. It would have been on all the news broadcasts, but, but word traveled by word of mouth, and, and David became famous, and then he became a warrior in Saul's army, and he would go out, and, and he, re- I mean, he, was a, he was great. He was a great leader, 
And what happened was Saul began to notice that people were acknowledging David more than they were acknowledging him. And he got kind of jealous over it. And he went kind of nuts and he tried to kill David. Finally, David just had to go get away to save his life. But David never, never, never took matters into his own hands to knock off Saul. He could have. But he said, listen, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to wait on the Lord on this. So he's out in the wilderness. So that might have been it. Or there's another occasion where David now, he is the king, and he's got a son. He's got a son that is suave and debonair, a son that has long flowing hair. He's got a silver tongue, and he begins to begin. He starts this conspiracy to take over and to have himself declared as king. And David, in order to avoid a civil war, goes off into the desert, basically gets out of town, and he's out in the wilderness. And he's, he's not going to take matter into his own hands to go kill his own son. And so he's out in the wilderness. He's, he's saying, maybe, God, maybe you're trying to tell me something like you told Saul something. I need to listen. Now, we don't know which of these situations is the situation for Psalm 63. But this we do know. David was in a fix. David was in a very difficult situation. He was struggling. And so this psalm, which is a desert psalm, is not only a desert psalm because it's written in the desert, it expresses the desert, the wilderness of David's soul. Here David was in a huge fix. This was a spiritual struggle for him. He was struggling to grasp, to understand what God's will is, to understand the rejection, to understand how people had turned their backs on him, to understand the uncertainty that comes with life. Now, you and I have not been in the desert of Judah on the same cave or in the same tent that David was in. But i got to tell you, you and I get in those situations where we do not understand life. We do not understand why things are happening to us. We do not understand why people are treating us the way they're treating us. We do not understand why they turn their backs on us. We have times where we feel absolutely alone. That's where David was. That's where some of you have been or where some of you are now or where some of you will be. This psalm is not just written to express David's emotions at the time. This psalm is written to us when we find ourselves in spiritual deserts. And so we want to hear what it has to say to us. And so let's begin by looking at verse 1. David writes, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The setting, the physical setting was a perfect expression of where David was spiritually. So what what can we learn from this that help us? And the first thing is this. Desert prayers express a desperate desire for God. Desert prayers, when we're in our spiritual wilderness, they express a desperate desire for God. Some of you have have been thirsty. Now, I don't mean you just wanted some Kool-Aid or or Coke or or, a little swallow of water. Some of you have been really, really thirsty. You, you've been dehydrated. Your body was just, you had to have water. I've had a couple of situations like that in my life where I was just desperate, desperate for water. 
David was in that situation spiritually. But the only thing that would satisfy him was the presence of God. God himself was the only thing that would satisfy him. There was, David's expressing this yearning, this longing for the presence of God. And he compares it to, to wanting water. It's very similar, although David didn't write Psalm 42, it's very, very similar to what's expressed in Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with my God? Did any of you wake up this morning and just go, is it time yet? Is it time for me to go and, and meet with God and gather with all? Can, can we leave early? Can we get, I want a good seat. I want to get there and I, I want to be in the front row. Just the two of you. I, three of you. Okay, got five in the front. I want to be in the front row. I am so excited. This is Sunday. All right. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Or maybe, maybe it's your quiet time. You wake up in the morning. Oh, I just can't wait. Just can't, okay, let me get my coffee first, but then I just can't wait. I got to go and spend some time with God. I got to open his word. I got to hear what God is saying today. That's the kind of yearning that is expressed here, a yearning, a longing for God. And the question you may want to ask yourself is, where is the desperation in my prayers? Where is the longing and the yearning to be in the presence of God. If it's not there, why not? Now, I've got a theory, and my theory is because of where we live and the culture, society in which we live, we have so many things to distract us that it's hard for us to to desire God because these other things are clamoring for our attention. They're, they're jumping out at us. They're, they're, they're calling to us and, and they come with promises. And the promise is this, if you will eat this food or drink this beverage or drive this car or wear these clothes, then you will be satisfied. It will make you happy. It will make you content. I got to tell you, It won't. It won't. It's a lie. It's a substitute for the real thing. We have a craving. We have a desire. We know there's something missing. But instead of finding that fulfilled in God... We try to find it fulfilled in other things. Last night, we had a wonderful dessert uh, fundraiser for First Call. This place was filled with tables, and there were all kinds of sweets. And that was all good because, well, I tried them all, but, and they were all good. Man, how, how enticing that is. But suppose I tried to live on a steady diet of that. Not only would we have to go and open the both double doors for me to get in, but I would be the, an unhealthy person. I would be getting what I wanted, but not what I needed. Those little mini s'mores, 
For some of you who were last night, those are pretty tasty. But I can't live on those things. But my taste buds want that. I guess where we need to start with this is just a simple, heartfelt prayer to God which says something like this. Lord, I'm sorry that I'm satisfied with things. Give me a thirst for you. Give me a thirst for you. Sometimes it takes a desert experience in your life to trigger that moment. You may be complaining about your circumstances, but that may be God's way of taking you by the shoulders, looking you in the eyes, and say, I'm here. I'm enough. That's what David experienced in the desert. The second verse. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. Second truth, desert prayers grow from previous encounters with God. Here's the difference. David, do you know where David got most of his training? As a shepherd. Out in the field, keeping watch over the flocks by night and day. David got most of his training out there by himself with a bunch of dumb sheep. Most of his life was spent bored. I can almost assure you that if David had had an iPod, he would not be the man he is. He grew up to be. Because he didn't have those things. All he had was nature and time. That was it. But it was a perfect recipe for learning to commune with God on a daily basis. And so he began to understand God by understanding nature and spending time with him. And and then there were occasions where that boredom was broken by absolute terror. When a bear or a lion would come to attack the flocks. And David would have to step up and attack, step up and confront this challenge, and he learned, wow, even though that bear, that lion, they're stronger than I am, God has enabled me to overcome. And so now, when he hears Goliath, a nine-foot giant, bad-mouthing God and bad-mouthing God's people, he has the courage to step up and say, listen, the Lord delivered me from the bear, he delivered me from the lion, that's chump change. And he took the initiative and he went out and he confronted the giant and he brought him down because he knew God was with him. He didn't learn that in that moment. He learned it throughout his life. He learned it as he walked with God day in and day out. Some of you come to crisis moments in your life, giant moments in your life, and you have no faith to face it because you haven't spent time with God before. That's one of the reasons we are overwhelmed by our problems in life is that we haven't taken time to develop the time with God. And I got to tell you, listen, when I'm in the car, I listen to news, I listen to sports, I listen to music. Some of you, though, when you're in the car, you shut it all off and you spend time with God. Great. That's great. 
Some of you, first thing you do, you get up, you turn the TV on. There is noise, clamor all day. There's never any time to just be you and God. If that's the way it is in your life, I can go ahead and tell you when you face those crisis desert moments, are you going to know from experience that God is there? David said, I've beheld his power and glory. I've seen what he can do because I've spent time with him. Verses 3 to 5 read this. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods, with singing lips. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. Here's the third truth. Desert prayers reveal our choosing to worship God. Choosing to worship God. It's a choice, a choice that we make. It would be nice if we would just get like overwhelmed with the spirit and we just kind of lose ourselves and we just, we go into this time of worship. But most of the time for us, worship is a choice. I can choose to worship or I can choose something else. You're here this morning choosing to worship together with God's other people. There are a lot of people who are making a different choice and they're not bad people. It's just they're making a different choice. Life is full of choices. You can choose to be in a Bible study. You can choose to be in a small group. You can choose to come to worship. Or you can choose to do something else. Life is full of choices. Your attitudes are your choice. What you choose is your choice. Some of you get in desert desert situations, bad situations, difficult situations, and you become absolutely intolerable and nobody wants to be around you. You get angry. You get bitter. You withdraw. You don't have to choose that. You can make a different choice. I was going through, um, a couple days ago, I was going through the cards that me, my 50th birthday, y'all, just so many cards came in on my 50th birthday, and, and most of them said, wow, you sure don't look that old. <laughs> Actually, none of them said that, but I wish they had. But there was one card that was, it had, had Snoopy, I'm a big fan of Snoopy, and I opened it up, and there was a Snoopy that was on a spring. It wasn't like a jack-in-the-box where you open it and go, whoa! But you open it, and Snoopy just kind of jiggles around a little bit, you know, because he's on a spring. And I said, you know what? I need that. And so I carefully took the spring off the card, and I took the little Snoopy, and I took it into my closet, and I taped it up so it's on the little thing, so it's kind of there, so it'll, it can move a little bit depending on, uh, I guess, whether I jiggle it or not. But it'll move a little bit. But that is in there to remind me to make a choice. I can leave the house grumpy and upset and anxious. Or I can do a little Snoopy dance, which I will not do for you because you may YouTube it. (laughs) I can make a different choice. Charles Swindoll is one of my favorite writers, and and Charles Swindoll said something about the attitude that we have. He said, attitude is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failure, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It'll make or break a company, a church, or a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. 
We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can, can do is play on the one string we have, and that's our attitude. I'm convinced that life is 10% of what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We're in charge of our attitudes, and we are in charge of our attitudes. We have a choice as to what our attitudes are when we confront the circumstances. David had a choice, and David chose to worship. David chose to worship. When you find yourself in a spiritual desert and it feels like the whole world is against you, when it feels that that the people you, you love have turned their backs on you, when you're uncertain as to what your future holds, make a choice. I will honor God with my life. I will honor him with my lips. I will honor him with my heart. I will lift my hands up to him and praise him. It doesn't matter how it feels. It doesn't matter whether or not I can understand it. I am making a choice to worship. Verses 6 through 8. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Here's the next truth. Desert prayers express complete dependence on God's strength. Dependence. That's the reason that David could worship in the desert. When he lay down at night, his thoughts were not of all his problems. What did he say? On my bed, I remember you. Now hang on, because I want to ask you a question. When you lay down at night on your bed, what do you remember? What are you thinking about? What's going through your mind? One of the reasons that David can make this choice to worship is he recognized that his God was bigger than his problems. That's why he was able to go out and face Goliath. He knew that it didn't matter whether Goliath was 9 feet tall or 90 feet tall. His God was bigger. His God was able. When we lay on the bed at night, what is it that occupies our thoughts? When David lay down, his thoughts were not first and foremost on his troubles. His thoughts were on the Lord. And that displaced his discouragement. It displaced his fear. It displaced his anxiety. God moved in. He says, my soul clings, clings to you. I miss the days of little children clinging to me. Well, my little children, yours, not so much. No. I like that too. I miss the days of a little hand grabbing my hand. I miss the days of a little body snuggling up next to me in the chair. I miss those days. I miss the days when I, didn't have, when I don't have to coerce either my son or daughter to say I love you, but they come up and say it on the road. I miss those days. David says to his father, I My soul clings to you. 
holds to you. My soul has has taken you and won't let go. But we are like the five-year-old in the Walmart parking lot. We can't wait to let go. We can't wait to go running through the parking lot with cars zooming here and there and people not paying attention and backing up and carts rolling. We can't wait for those days of independence where we can get our hand out of our parents' hand and run across the street with scissors. We can't wait for those days when we can let go. But what we need is to depend on God, to recognize, God, I need you every hour. My soul clings to you. This is the same David who wrote, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Because God is looking after me. Because God is my shepherd. He will take care of what I need. My soul clings to that. I don't have it all figured out. I don't have the right plan for life. It can all come apart at the seams at the next moment. And so I'm clinging to you. And I can pray and I can offer praise. Because the enemies do not determine the course of my life. God does, and I'm hanging on to Him. Because my God, when He walks me through the Walmart parking lot, is on the lookout for cars backing out. Is on the lookout for some 16-year-old who just got their license flying through the parking lot thinking it's fun to jump over the speed bumps. My God's got my hand, and He sees that cart that's just rolling by itself. In the middle of the parking lot coming right at us. My God sees that. He's got me. And I've got him and I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. I remember what it feels like to have wet arms in a swimming pool clinging to me. Because the water's above their head. That's our appropriate attitude to God. God, I got you. And I'm not letting go. I'm holding on because you are my life. It's when you and I lay all our cares on the Lord that we find out just how much he cares for us. Let's look at verse 9. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Next truth, desert prayers express absolute confidence in God's sovereignty. I told you earlier about the circumstances that could have put David out in the wilderness. One was he was on the run from Saul. The other on his run from his son Absalom. And David never said, God, I've got this. I'll go take care of him. I'll go finish Saul off myself. I'll go finish off my son myself. I'll I'll establish my own security. I'll do it my own way. No, he said, listen, God's up to something. I don't understand it all. And I'm willing to wait on him. 
I'm willing to wait on God's timing for this to take place because I believe God's got it in control. Some of you were very, very, very worried about the election. Your guy may not have gotten elected. And some of you woke up on Wednesday morning and you were, chip, you were biting your fingernails and you're really worried about it. Well, I, I can't tell you the direction this country is going to go financially or socially. I can't tell you all that. But I can tell you this. I have a God who is still king, who is still on his throne, and who's still sovereign. Go back and read the end of the book. And you'll see who wins. And I, the, the thing that came to mind for me was exactly what Jesus said to Martha. Martha, he said, Martha, he said, listen, you're worried about many things. You got yourself all in a tizzy about so many things. But only one thing matters. And I tell you, folks, if we get on the page with the one thing, then we can trust God no matter what our circumstances are. That's why Paul could write in Philippians 4, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious. Don't be stressed out. Instead, pray. That's a simple instruction of Scripture. That's what David chose to do. David could have been in that cave. He could have been worried. He could have been anxious. He could have been stressed. He could have been cursing. He could have been all doing all kinds of things. But instead, he said, listen, I got nowhere to go except to God. Nowhere to go except to pray. And so I'm going to spend my time praying and in worship and acknowledging his sovereignty in my life. Jesus has a wonderful exchange for some of you today. You came in here not just carrying shoeboxes, but you came in here carrying baggage of anxiety and guilt and remorse. You came carrying this baggage in here. And what Jesus says is, listen, give me your anxieties. Give me your worries. Let me take those off your hands. And here's what I want to give you in exchange. I want to give you peace, confidence, security that is beyond anything that you can understand. It'll blow your mind. And I want to give it to you in Christ Jesus who will set up guard over your heart and your mind. Wow. You mean Jesus will stand guard? That's pretty good. And that's what God says. Give it up. Give up the anxieties. Give up the worries. Don't be anxious about anything, but instead pray. Trust me. Bring it to me. And I'll give you peace instead. Now David prayed his prayer from a literal desert. There he yearned for God. Where are you? Some of you are in a spiritual desert. Some of you have your backs against the walls. Some of you feel trapped. Some of you feel betrayed. Some of you feel let down. Some of you feel anxious. 
You see, the landscape of our spiritual deserts can take many forms. But what we learn from David in his time in the desert is that God is there. And he's waiting for us to meet us in the midst of our spiritual desert. Some of you, your spiritual lives have become barren and dry by your own choosing. Now, I don't want to meddle here, but if I ask you how your prayer life was, you'd be honest to say to me, what prayer life? I only pray when I have to. Or only pray when I'm, you know, somebody says something and I feel guilty and it doesn't last. I don't know where to begin. I don't know where to start. It starts with a simple prayer. And that is this. What David said is, your love is better than my life. To be able to God and go to God and say, okay, God, I want you to understand, I've settled for a lot of substitutes for you. There are a lot of things that have my attention, a lot of things that have my focus, a lot of things that, that, ha- that get my satisfaction. God, I, I want the shirts with the alligators and the guy riding the horse. I want those shirts. God. I want the jeans that have the things on the pockets, you know, the, the, the stitching on the pockets. God, I, I want my clothes to have the right store name on them when I go out. God, there's this makeup I saw on TV, and, and it's great for the supermodels. God, if I just had that, then I could be a supermodel too. God, I want to drive this kind of car, because if I drive this kind of car, it's cool. And if it's cool, then I'm cool. God, you know, if my house were a little bit bigger, I I could be happy then, God. God, if my husband didn't... Well, you can fill in the blank on that one. Then I could be content. I mean, you could flip it around on the wife, but I'm not going there. Smart guy. David said, your love. God, your love. To know your love to have you here with me and to know you love me God that's better than life itself it's better than anything else some of you may need this may be your moment to say God I want to I repent of my non-existent prayer life but I want you to give me a yearning for you a longing for you, a desire for you that's more than my desire for anything else. I want you more than I want anything else, God. And I'm making making a choice to want you more than I want anything else, God. I'm not there yet. Get me there. I can't do it on my own. Get me there, God. I'm gonna I'm gonna wake up every morning and it's not I, I'm gonna make a choice, God. That I'm gonna wake up this morning and I'm gonna I'm gonna reach my you can do it from bed. You can reach your hand up to God and say, Okay, God, here's my hand, take it. I'm not getting out of bed, God. 
till I put my hand in your hand, God. I'm depending on you. Get me where I need to be spiritually, God. Yes, there's some discipline to your prayer life. There is discipline to your prayer life. Get your butt out of bed, open your Bible, and say, God, just, okay, start with me right here where I am. If the best you've got is God is great, God is good, give it to him. Yearn for him. Long for him. Ask him to develop that in you. Because there's going to come a time in your life, if you haven't found it yet, there's going to come a time in your life when you've got nothing but him. And when you get to that time, will he be enough? 